From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today we are going to do something a little bit different. Remember how back in the old days I used to only do interview shows and then that kind of gradually and imperceptibly changed? Well, it's not that I'm never going to do interviews again, especially when I get to do an interview with my friend Lane Green, Robert Lane Green to some of you. And he has a new book out about language that we simply have to talk about. It's called Talk on the Wild Side. I don't know why I can never come up with titles like that, but everybody else can talk on the wild side, why language can't be tamed. And it's a book that you really should get because it teaches lessons about language that I try to teach on this show. So that's why you should get it. And that is why I like it. Now, of course, in bringing in the music, if it's going to be a book called Talk on the Wild Side, then of course, we have to have a bit of Lou Reed. I remember this song when I was in college. We used to play it and frankly indulge in various activities quite deeply. I'm glad I picked an easy major, but here it is. You're all waiting for Walk on the Wild Side, and so here is a bit of it, and then we'll pull it down, and we'll begin with Lane. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs, and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side. Lane, welcome to Lexicon Valley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you've got a new book out, and it teaches us all kinds of lessons, such as that we're often told that language is robust, organic, and evolving, as you put it. But then you add that actually language in its true self is incomplete, redundant, and illogical, which it certainly is. And so my first question to you is, if language is incomplete, redundant, and illogical, then shouldn't it be the quest of people like you and people like me to try to fix that? I think part of the point is that it's way too tough and ridiculous for us to ever be able to fix. If we were able to fix it, if it was going to submit to command management, some clever person would have figured that out by now, and they just haven't done it. So there's the Académie Française that tries to do this for French and the Real Academia Española for Spanish, and they just don't seem to have any effect on the real language at all. And they tried. They picked some of the greatest writers and linguists and thoughtful people about the language, but in the end, they just don't have any effect on the way the language is actually used because it's just distributed among millions of people. I compare it to an economy. It's just too hard to command the decisions of millions of people in an economy. It's much easier to just let them get on with it and let the market set prices and supplies and things like that. But we haven't cured the common cold yet, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying, right? That's what people are wondering. Right. If there were actual problems like the common cold, we should try to stop them. Cancer or something more serious. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If it were polio, I would definitely be in favor (laughs) of fixing, say, the split infinitive, but the split infinitive is not polio. And so letting people make their own linguistic decisions turns out to create a much more, if you want to keep this biological metaphor, creates a more healthy and robust organism than doing it by top-down management. The smartest person in the world can never create an organism as robust as the human being or the wolf or the amoeba, which was shaped by evolution, by time, by trial and error, and by a community of, in the case of language users and in the case of ecology, organisms themselves. 
yeah, okay, but let's face it. The analogy between language and the evolution of flora and fauna is intriguing, but perhaps incomplete. And so let's say that language is fit. You know, it's quite clear that no language has ever gone to the dogs. I've always wondered whether people actually think there's been documented some language that just fell apart. But I think most of us can even intuit that that's never happened. So every language basically does its job. But who are you to say? And Lane, you know, I'm just taking the part of assorted people who, you know, both of us often personally know and just in general. Who are you to say that we shouldn't try to make language the best that it can be, even if under ordinary conditions it ends up being fit But why can't we make it better? Why can't we make the language perfectly tidy, perfectly logical? Because, damn it, I get annoyed listening to people talk. I think it's a good question. What I do as an editor every day is take lots of prose from various writers, and I do try to make it better. Lane, tell them where you edit at. I'm both an editor at The Economist magazine, so I Mm -hmm. I edit our daily app. So I edit lots. Right now, I'm editing lots of short things coming at me. And then I'm also the language columnist. Every two weeks, I also have something to say about language itself when I write a column. So I both write and edit. And I've never seen a piece of writing that couldn't use some hand by an editor. I really believe that's true. So it's not that language can't be improved, but I think it can be improved at the individual level. The individual performer, the writer, the speaker should absolutely Hmm. do everything they can to write the best or speak the best that they possibly can. And the editor's job, in my case, is Mm -hmm. to make that even better still. What we're talking about engineering the whole language system trying to, I don't know, make better words or make the grammar more logical or clear. Well, you know, the greatest writers and speakers in the English language are doing a fantastic job with a clapped out, illogical, weird, redundant, incomplete grammar. I mean, you know, there are so many flaws in the English language. You've been over them many times in your show. And we know that we find the same things in every other language we look at. There's just not a perfect language out there. And yet there are nearly perfect linguistic performances, the great writers, the great speakers. So I'm saying use your language as well as you can, by God, definitely. But the language itself, the English language, the French language, the Swahili language, does not need our management. That thing will take care of itself. You know what I don't like these days? How come all the kids are always using like? You're telling me that that's a language that's fit? What's all that? (laughs) Tell me about this like business. I'm supposed to just let that go by? But you know that person exists. I think I know that person personally. And (laughs) the thing about old people looking at young people is this is a remarkable thing. I have seen with my own eyes a text by a teacher of the Sumerian language. And this is the world's first written language. So we literally, and I use literally carefully myself, we literally have this as long as we have records of human language. This is in cuneiforms, right. There's a scribal teacher of cuneiform Sumerian saying that the young scribe is only concerned with filling his belly. He does not pay attention to the (laughs) scribal art. Okay, so this is 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Now, so we know that it's at least that old and it's probably even older. Although I do think it comes out more in written languages than it does in spoken languages. I think you probably have said the same yourself. But is like every third word an effective performance? No. But those are kids who will get better at using less and less like as they get older. They'll choose their words, their sentences, their grammar. All that will get better as they get older. And some people will always be bad linguistic performers. And that's not the fault of the state of English itself. It's the fault of the individual performer. And there will always be good and bad in language. Yeah. And one thing I'm going to hear about just is that usage of literally that you 
popped off with. And I actually think that it's perfectly natural. But I think that it can be so hard to process that language is always in a state of change. Or maybe I should use a trendier word and either say that it's dynamic or I should say that I'll be crisp and I'll say language is always in flux. That seems to go over better with some people. It's in this thing called flux. And in that vein, you have some of the dandiest examples in this book of how words have changed over time in a way that leaves you kind of awestruck and also kind of humble in thinking I'm complaining about the meaning of some word changing now when over time meaning is as flexible as this. Please explain to me how the word <clears throat> uh, buxom began. I'm going to do something unusual and start in the middle of the story because <laughs> I, I'll tell you how I discovered buxom. I was reading Samuel Johnson's plan for his dictionary. This is a few years before he started writing it. This is the first real dictionary of the English language and a magnificent work and actually readable. Continue. You can actually just sit down with this dictionary, have it by your toilet, pick it up, and start reading it. It's, it's just that good. <laughs> yeah. But Johnson wrote in this plan for his dictionary, among the things he wanted to fix was the word buxom. He said, nowadays it means wanton, or people use it to mean wanton, but it probably only means obedient. Now, I had never seen wanton or obedient. You don't think of Dolly Parton as obedient, exactly. The, no, no. So I was confused by both of those. So I went back to the beginning of buxom, and it turns out that buxom really did start out in English as meaning something like obedient. If you know any German, the word biegen means to bend, and so biegsam means bendable. Buxom, by extent, or the old English equivalent, buchsam, meant pliable or bendable. And so by metaphorical extension, that's obedient. Someone who is pliable is obedient. And then it took all these short steps. It went from obedient to agreeable. And from agreeable, it went to lively and gay. And from lively and gay, it went on to healthy. And from healthy and robust, it went on to plump. And from plump, it went on to plump for a woman. And from plump for a woman, it went on to mean basically Dolly Parton. So each of those steps is very sensible because, you know, agreeable to lively and gay is not a huge step. But if you look at the whole history from obedient to Dolly Parton, it's a long, it's a long story. <laughs> and this stuff is all over the language. Uh, if you open almost any common word in the OED, which does all these senses by historical meaning, you know, the first one, then the second one, any old word in the language its first recorded meaning will be something almost opaque to us. So buxom is, is a great story, but it's actually not that unusual. It's just kind of sexy, which is why I use it. That was a perfect example. And I had never known of it. I really enjoyed picking that up. And yeah, that's the thing. This is throughout the language. It's not just the word buxom and then two other ones. This is the nature of language. And it just leaves you feeling funny if you've got a collection of those in your head, thinking, well, why should I be upset about some word that was used differently 20 years ago than it is now? Because this is the way you get from obedient to Dolly Parton. Lane, I know, and I hope I'm not outing you on this, but you and I have talked about this over alcoholic beverages. You're not a fan of the show tune. And yet we are at the point where it's time for a cue. It's not going to be a show tune right now, but instead we're going to use Seinfeld. And so here is a clip that I just could not help using if we're talking about the word buxom. Hey, Mom, what kind of woman was Grandma? All of a sudden you're interested in your grandmother? Well, you know, you get to a certain point, you, you want to know about your roots. Well, she was a lovely woman. Yeah. <laughs> what about physically? Physically? Yeah, you, you know, what did she look like? Well, you've seen pictures. Well, you can't tell much from those pictures. Tell what? <laughs> was she uh, 
Monsieur Pig, oh? We linguist types, Lane, we call ourselves descriptivists instead of prescriptivists. The idea is that we hear language as it's used and we figure what could possibly be wrong with it. It seems to be doing just fine and it's complicated and nuanced the way it is. That's one of the pillar lessons from Lexicon Valley. But, but what's interesting about your book is that there are times when you seem to imply that a little bit of prescriptivism is okay. And so the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 1994 said on phenomena in the singular, which I must admit, you know, open, happy, hard to displease me on language. I hear people using phenomena in the singular, and there's a little part of me that thinks it's a phenomenon. But Merriam-Webster says you can be a pioneer, but we don't recommend it. They don't like that. But there are cases where you think prescriptivism might be okay. Could you explain that? Well, I basically feel like the community of writers and editors does exert a kind of conservative force on language, and there's nothing really wrong with that. If standards change relatively slowly, then that means that we'll be able to read the English of 100 years ago, say, and not have too much trouble with it, whereas radical change can render a language you know, very different in the course of 100 years. It happened to Turkish, for example, where a huge sort of dictatorial top-down reform made Ottoman Turkish kind of unreadable to modern ears. Mm-hmm. Normal languages will change over time, but it's okay if people in the community, individuals, want to slow that down just a little bit. And exerting a little drag, they keep that change at a reasonable pace so we don't lose control of the language too quickly. It's rarely the case that a language changes so that a grandparent can't talk to their grandchild. For all the mm-hmm. grandparents, like your old man voice early, who say, I just can't understand what the kids are saying these days. Mm-hmm. The fact is that a grandparent who with a decent hearing aid can understand 99.9% of what their grandchildren are saying almost all mm-hmm. the time. So the language doesn't change that fast. But one of the reasons it doesn't change that fast is that those of us who have a role to play as writers and editors, we can and maybe even should exert a little conservative force saying, look, this word has traditionally been used this way and it's lovely and useful in this way. It's not so lovely or not so useful, either it overlaps or it's confusing when it's changed. So you have a right to say decimate was useful as a word meaning to destroy a portion of. I and knew you were going to bring up that one, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, because I like I like decimated to mean <laughs> to destroy a portion of. And if you use it to mean to wipe out completely, then decimate is no different than uh, devastate or annihilate or wipe out or destroy or something like that. Whereas it's kind of in its own little niche as decimate because it, it doesn't have any good neighbors or synonyms. So I can have that as an opinion. As an <laughs> editor, I have the sovereign right to correct people who say decimate, meaning to wipe out. And I do. But I'm just one vote among the community of hundreds of millions of English speakers. And I'd never arrogate to myself the right to kind of make that call for everybody. Folks, you know how often people cram in people's credits at the beginning of the show and then you don't remember. And you know how a lot of you now, because we've been talking to Lane for a bit, are wondering what his deal is and where you can find more of him. Well, I'm going to tell you now so you don't have to rewind. Lane does the column Johnson, which is named after Samuel Johnson, in The Economist. And you can get a dose of this regularly in writing. So that's just something. Now, Lane, you know that we don't do a Lexicon Valley episode with no show tunes at all. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play a clip from Wonderful Town, 
which is a musical with music by Leonard Bernstein of West Side Story fame and lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. This was one of the big hits of 1953 and then also 2003 here in New York. And from that production, I am no, not from that production. Come to think of it, I'm going to play from the 1958 television production. Too much in the weeds, folks. Sorry. Anyway, this is the song Ohio. And there's a part in the middle where Ruth and Eileen, who are sisters living in a crummy apartment in Greenwich Village, and they're a little bit afraid at the beginning of their stay in New York, they're singing about what life was like back when they lived in Ohio, and they're kind of making fun of it. And Ruth, the older sister, I think older, I imagine she's supposed to be in her late 20s, and it's supposed to be alarming that she's not married yet. But at one point, she says, who's going with whom? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, H-I-O, maybe I'd better go. Oh. Now listen, Eileen, Ohio was stifling. We just couldn't wait to get out of the place. With Ma saying, Ruth, what, no dates for this evening? And Pop, with Eileen, do be home, dear, by ten. Ugh. Those gossipy neighbors and everyone yapping who's going with whom. And dating those drips that I've known since I'm four. So, Lane, how do you feel about it's 1953 and you have Ruth saying who's going with whom? Should they have left that as who's going with who, which I think that actual person may have said, except that Ruth, the character, is a writer. So maybe she would have said who's going with whom. What say you? Well, I guess I want to get into the mind of this character now because who, <laughs> whom is exactly one of those shibboleths that, you know, tells you who you, who you're, whom you're dealing with. <laughs> you know, who, whom is really useful that way. If you hear a really good, confident, correct whom user, you know, you're dealing with a very specific kind of person. A working class person in 1953 would normally say who's going with who in speech, you know, and so I'd have to know what the writer wanted out of that person. Yeah. Ruth is a kind of a persnickety, serious person, brown hair, which, you know, red that way back then. Eileen is the one who gets all the fellas and Ruth wants to be a writer. So she would, and as a matter of fact, there is another song in it where she talks about persnickety grammar rules. People are going to wish that I played from that. And so she would definitely be a whom stickler herself. But then the question is, would she use it while she's huddling in bed with her sister being homesick? It gets kind of Harry. Does she have glasses or no? She might as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe. I'm I'm a whom user, right? You're someone like me who likes to learn weird foreign languages and I've learned right. a lot that have case all over the place. Things like Russian and German case is where fun, yeah. you can't not know whether something's a subject of a sentence or the direct object or an indirect object. You have to have that in the back of your mind at all times because it's going to change the form of a word. There's only six words left in English that work that way uh, that have a direct object form and who, whom just happens to be one of them. Otherwise, we can forget about case in English, and most of us do most of the time. I start the book with the TV show Sherlock, a BBC show with Benedict Cumberbatch. It's fun enough. It's fine. But there's a sort of irritating scene where they set Sherlock up as this super grammatical pedant. It's the first scene of the episode, and he corrects a man's grammar again and again. And this man is fearing being executed for a murder in Minsk in Belarus. And Sherlock is distracted by the case because he can't stop correcting the man's grammar. Just tell me what happened from the beginning. We've been to a bar, nice place, and uh, I got chatting with one of the waitresses, and Karen weren't happy with that, so 
and get back to the hotel, we end up having a bit of a ding-dong, don't we? <sighs> She's always getting at me, saying I weren't a real man. Wasn't a real man. What? It's not weren't, it's wasn't. Oh. Go on. Well, then I don't know how it happened, but suddenly there's a knife in my hands. And you know, my old man was a butcher, so I know how to handle knives. He learned us how to cut up a beast. Taught. What? Taught you how to cut up a beast. Yeah, well, then, then I've done it. Did it. Did it. Stabbed her. Over and over and over. And I looked down and she weren't... Wasn't moving no more. Anymore. God help me, I don't know how it happened, but it was an accident, I swear. Hey, you've got to help me, Mr. Holmes. Everyone says you're the best. Without you, I'll get hung for this. No, no, Mr. Pyrrhic, not at all. Hanged? Yes. And in the very next scene, Sherlock misses a whom. He says, who's sleeping with who? Mm. And I thought, ha ha. They've just had this scene about grammar. Clearly, this who's sleeping with who thing is going to be a major plot point because surely the writers wouldn't have set Sherlock up to be a pedant and then just missed this who. They just missed it. It was just a mistake. They've spent two, three solid screen Ah. minutes making Sherlock a super grammar pedant. And then the very next scene after the credits, he says, who's sleeping with who? So even the writers of this show didn't notice. Even Benedict Cumberbatch, the actor, in reading the lines, didn't notice. Martin Freeman... (laughs) Playing across him, didn't notice. That's the status of whom right now. It's on Death Watch. It's not going to completely die because our conservatism keeps really weird little things alive. So who knows how long it's going to take to actually die. But it's on Death Watch. Yeah, we English speakers, especially we have to learn languages for no reason type English speakers. It's easy to have case envy. So I like whom in the sense of inviting it over to the occasional party. You know something else? How if you're interviewing somebody about a book, you can get away with only reading the first few chapters. I, of course, have never done that myself. But Lane, I want to prove that for you, I did not only read the first few chapters. I actually read the whole book. So we're going to go to the end where you talk about some really interesting other issues. George Lakoff, who is a linguist and cognitive scientist and is an erstwhile colleague of mine at UC Berkeley, wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant back in, I believe, 2004. And his idea, which got around a lot at the time, was that the left in the United States needed to change the linguistic frames that they discuss political issues through because the right has a way of providing the linguistic frames that end up shaping the entire way we see things and impeding change. And so one of his most famous ideas was that we shouldn't call them taxes, we should call them membership fees. Or his idea was that instead of talking about gay marriage, because that concept puts many people off, for better or for worse, that we should change it to talking about freedom to marry, which you could think of as kind of a euphemism, but I take his point. His idea is that we have to change frames in order to change minds. And I personally feel like trying to get into other people's heads, trying to understand why people think something that you don't, other than that they're stupid, crazy, or evil, is useful, but you're actually a little bit impatient with the idea of trying to change frames. You say that what you have to do is just use suasion itself. Could you 
fill out that point a little bit? Sure. I think Lakoff has got a good point. Clearly, metaphor is important in our thinking, and it's definitely everywhere in our language. What I think he does is oversell it pretty significantly. He sort of makes it sound like we think only in metaphor, and we can't escape our metaphorical thinking. And so when he was asked once, if there was a Lakoff's law, what would Lakoff's law be? And he said, frames trump facts. That's his own short three-word description of his Mm -hmm. thinking. And I just don't know that that's always true. First of all, if a frame is like a prison, you shouldn't be able to get out of it, right? That's what a prison (laughs) is for. But we're able to question our metaphors all the time. We're able to look at a metaphor we're habitually used to using, and we, we, we step back and say, wait a minute, this doesn't actually make any sense. We're having a big discussion about Brexit here in London, where I live, and and there's a lot of talk about the metaphor of having one's cake and eating it too. And it's become apparent to a lot of people that that doesn't make any sense, partly because it used to be <laughs> have, eat one's cake and have it too. But anyway, right. the point is, if you're a prisoner of your frame, you shouldn't be able to question it. And yet people do frequently step back and realize that a frame is misleading. Lakoff's very quest to convince people to change their frames suggests that they can be changed. So people are open to suasion. It's not just frames all the way down. Language, fortunately, thank God, is not a prison for our thinking. If it were, then things like Orwell's 1984 and Newspeak would kind of enchain our minds. But it fortunately doesn't work that way. We're able to think non-linguistically or extra-linguistically. Mm-hmm. I don't like cake. It's always bothered me. Do you like cake? I'm a pie guy. I me like, too. I like a good gooey pie. There's nothing sadder than it being somebody's birthday, which seems to happen a lot. And the culminating activity seems to be that somebody brings out some dry thing. Never been a fan of cake. How about a little en vogue right here? Here we go. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. Never gonna get it. Never get it. Blaine, you know, the battle against prescriptivism never seems to work. And I think you know, given that I've written books like this too, this book that you've written is magnificent, but it has predecessors. And there is a piece of all of us, I think people like you and me who are trying to preach a message to the public, that feels that it never really seems to quite get through. Gosh, you know, leave your language alone and any number of other books. You try to tell the public these sorts of things and a lot of people just very sweetly dig in their heels and Lynn Truss's Eat, Shoots and Leaves makes her massively wealthy and sells 400 million billion copies. What do you think the main obstacle is in the face of a book like yours that's full of compelling and logical arguments? What are we up against? I have a little metaphor for this. Do you remember when we all learned that Pluto was a planet? <laughs> yeah. And then people were just horrified when they learned that it wasn't a planet? You don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the International Whatever Union, the Astronomical Union, decided that it was a rocky dust ball, too small, too wobbly, too weird to be anything like this sort of natural set of things that they wanted to talk about, which were called planets. And so they demoted Pluto. And people had a cow, not because they care about this dust ball at the edge of the solar system, which is trivial and meaningless in all of our lives. (laughs) People are just weirdly conservative. We're just conservative in our nature. And so people learned a lot of things about language when they were sort of 20. It might have been a couple years earlier, the high school 10th grade teacher at 16. It might have been a couple years later with a favorite senior English teacher. (laughs) But kind of it's those special years when you're feeling your awesomest between sort of 16 and 24, when a lot of your identity is set. And for those people who become 
writers and editors, people like me, people like you, this became really important to us. Our knowledge of the rules was something we were really proud of. And I get that because I'm proud of my knowledge of language. I, I know you are too. So that stands in the way of getting people through to this kind of more relaxed, confident. I like to think of it as a confident attitude towards language, mm-hmm. that even if you're good with the English of 2018, it's going to keep changing. And in 2048, you're going to hate what's going on. But the English language will be okay. Most people just don't think that far ahead. They don't think a thousand years back to Beowulf and they don't think 30 years forward to 2048. Right. You're just concerned with how you're using the language, how the kids are using the language, you know, yourself, your kids, your grandkids, your colleagues. Our field of view is so narrow. Anybody who's ever had to do that class in the history of English suddenly Mm -hmm. comes out just thinking, oh my God, I didn't know that English was so different even just a couple of centuries ago. Exactly. Nothing of... 1500, 1300, you know, 800 AD. Well, Lane, if that is the case, then let's try something where I sense that the public really does get confused because on the one hand, what they're told has a certain logic to it. But on the other hand, what they're told you're supposed to say sounds like somebody from the planet Pluto. And so, for example, it was he. And this is something you discuss in the book. You're supposed to say it was he because the it and the he are the same thing. They're both the subject and therefore they have to have the same case and therefore he has to be in the nominative. And that's Nathan Heller in The New Yorker a while back. It was he. And if you talk about this in polite company, a lot of people feel that, well, you know, Mrs. Henderson, my teacher, told me that that was the correct thing to do. But then on the other hand, everybody knows that if they walked around saying it was he, they would die alone. What do we do about case? like that. The link I try to break in people's minds is the idea that language is itself logic, that language somehow works like predicate logic or (laughs) symbolic logic, whatever your flavor of logic is, that is this kind of perfect lossless code for translating my thoughts into your head without any duplication or any mess. And that's Mm -hmm. not how it works because we have perfect systems like that. Mathematicians and logicians have created ways of doing that, but they don't look like natural language at all. The people who know language best know just how weird it is. So it was he, the it and the he refer to the same person, but they don't have to have the same form. That's like saying it was Mike, then it and Mike have to have the same form. Therefore, you should only <laughs> say was it was Mike. it or Mike or was Mike. Was yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, that doesn't make any sense. That's not that's not how language works. So if you start looking at the weirdness, the weirdness is fun. First of all, that's one of the most enjoyable things about language is just finding these oddball facts all over the place, mm-hmm. right under your nose every single day. Once you spend a lot of time doing that, you lose any sense that language is pure logic. And I devote a whole chapter to that. I hope people read it just because they'll see just how weird things are. Him, he, it, they all refer to the same person in a sentence, and there's no reason they should have the same form. That's just nonsense. Well, Lane, what are the audiobook plans for your book, if I may? You know, I have spent three days in a studio with cough drops and water. Uh, You're kidding. My... You do yours? All... Oh, very good. <laughs> first time. And um, this is my first book, but it's my first audio book. And so it was really interesting because I, I was listening to one at the same time. It was not by the author. And I realized I really did want to read it despite the hassle. It's difficult exactly. to do well. But it was an economics book I was listening to. And I could just tell the reader 
did not understand some of the points because the <laughs> yeah. turn of the phrase did not land in the right place. It's just the little things you do with intonation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't want to put my stuff in anybody else's hands, basically, or anybody else's mouth. And that so, is exactly what I put in all of my contracts. I figure if I wrote it, I'm going to read it. But I think we can share a little bit about how the sausage is made. That is one of the most monotonous processes I have ever been through. Didn't you find it mind-numbing to have to sit in the booth and, frankly, read anything, but especially your own stuff? Not only mind-numbing, but face-exhausting. <laughs> you don't think about the muscles in your cheeks very often because God. you don't often uh. spend sort of eight hours at a stretch using them. But oh, by God, God, by the end of the day, I was sort of <laughs> tripping over my tongue because it was all just yes. tired. And all that tea, it's worth it. And I'm really glad that you read your own book. I was going to say, I like your radio voice. And yet, you listen to him, everybody. I get the feeling that a lot of you are going to listen to the book. I want to tell you that the physical book is one of those that's a nice size and that it smells good. But a lot of you aren't going to touch it. You're going to hear it. So listen to Talk on the Wild Side by Robert Lane Green, who is the Johnson columnist and edits at The Economist. You read Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. It was delightful. That was back during the Carter administration. Now read this one. And Lane, thank you very much for coming on and enlightening us on what is between the covers of that wonderful book. It's been a pleasure. Now that we are in Book Review Corner, (laughs) there's no such thing, but I guess there is now. You hear that music back there? That's the closing theme song of the Lucy Show first season. I've always liked the song and the arrangement. But in any case, I wanted to mention one more book that you might consider reading right now, this very moment in our holiday season, and that's Gaston Doran's Babel Around the World in 20 Languages. He did a book some years ago, not some years ago, a few years ago called Lingo that pulled off a really amazing feat, which is that he took every language in Europe and told you a little something about it. Now, you feel like you want that book, but imagine actually reading it, you know, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Albanian, somewhere around, you know, Greek or Luxembourgish. You'd kind of get tired. He actually manages to hold you discussing about 70 languages. It's a potato chip book. I don't know how he did it. Well, now Babel is about the world's 20 biggest languages. And so that's not just English, French, Spanish, German, but also Tamil. Punjabi. Haven't you always wanted to know more about Punjabi? It seems like everybody speaks it but you, but you know, what do you know about it? You can actually learn about it. Bengali. Yes, that is one of the top 20 languages in the world. Javanese. And that's not me saying Japanese wrong. Javanese. You know, there are five different social levels of speaking. Javanese five. And it's amazing. It's not a listy book. Doran is really good at taking something that could be listy and instead making it interesting. I reviewed lingo. And in the review, I said that Doran treats the languages like a bunch of his best friends. And that's definitely true in Babel of these big 20. It's like you're just at this party, except instead of the people at the party being people whose occupations you're trying to memorize and everybody seems to be named Lenore, etc. It's the languages of the world. It keeps you going page by page. And so talk on the wild side and Babel around the world in 20 languages. Both should be your stocking stuffers for the holidays. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And John McWhorter is I. See?